Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And our good friend and Heritage Foundation colleague, Emma Waters, is back with us today. Hey, Emma. Hi, friends. So good to see you. So good to see you. All right, so we have to complete this almost trilogy, this saga that we've been talking about with Taylor Swift, the Super Bowl, Travis Kelsey. We've talked about it the past two shows. I'm like, let's just tie this with a bow, make it a solid three shows where we have talked about this. Obviously, the Super Bowl was on Sunday. The Kansas City Chiefs won. They beat the 49ers. It was a big game, and everyone was watching to see would Taylor Swift go out on the field and kiss Travis Kelsey afterwards, and she did, and videos and photos of that have just exploded across social media all of this week. But one of the other images that has been almost just as viral is a photo of Travis Kelsey yelling at his coach during the game on um, the sidelines. Travis Kelsey kind of comes up, grabs his coach, catches him off guard to where the coach actually stumbles, and Travis gets right in his face. And in response to that, Swifties started raising some concerns about, Mm. does Taylor's boyfriend have anger issues? Is this... A red flag. So what did you all make of this exchange between Travis Kelsey and Chiefs coach Andy Reid? Well, when I first saw it live, um, I just thought it was insane. Uh, Being a soccer player that had to deal with difficult coaches that I didn't always agree with, I mean, no, that (laughs) would never have been tolerated ever. And it just very concerning because obviously, you know, you're passionate, you're excited, you're trying everything you can do to to win this game, which he ultimately did. But you've got a coach in his 60s. Um, I'm not sure if he has a, had a hip replacement, but the the coach uh, he he did refer to, you know, Travis really testing his hips off or hips out, oh. and um, he was like, he caught me off balance. I'm fine, but I mean, at the end of the day, was that just to save Travis from the repercussions of the media? Like coaches are like parents; they will throw themselves under the bus mm-hmm. to help their players and that love and affection was not conveyed in reciprocation from Travis on this weekend. They both did make light of it. Uh, Coach Reed was like, oh, you know, Travis Kelsey was just, he wanted to be on the field. He wanted to be playing. He was saying, put me in coach. You know, he's passionate. I love that about Travis that he's so passionate and wants to play. And Travis Kelsey, like you said, Kristen kind of did the same thing where it was like, ah, like it's okay. Our relationship goes way deeper than that moment. And um, reportedly, Travis Kelsey did later apologize to the coach still during the game. But I don't know, Emma, what do you think? Is is this is this a red flag? Yeah, I think this is super unattractive. <laughs> I would not want to date a man who had an unrestrained passion like that, mm. especially because I, I've read, and I don't follow this closely, but I've read elsewhere, this is not the first time he's shown this sort of aggressive anger in a football game. And I think it's a fine line between you want strong, manly men, right, who Mm -hmm. were very passionate about what they do. And if this was in a war, right, like I would want all of that energy and more (laughs) um, (laughs) angled towards the enemy, right? (laughs) But if you're talking about a game and you're talking about the coach that he respects um, and an authority figure in his life, if that's the way that he treats an authority figure, that would be a red flag, Mm -hmm. I think, for how he would treat other instances of conflict where he disagreed with the decision. Yeah, so I, I thought it was really concerning. And all the memes are just really... I don't know, maybe for men, this is like less of a flag, but I feel like for women, you see the full force of his effort and there's Mm -hmm. nothing that just makes you want to retreat back than that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think because as anyone, you think, well, what if that was directed at me? And, you know, in I'm sure there's a very fair argument to be made that, well, it's, you know, 
Travis Kelsey's feelings towards his coach are probably very different than they are towards Taylor Swift. But I, I feel like there's this tension here, right, of, okay, he, in a very, very public setting, disrespected and dishonored, like you said, Emma, an authority figure. That is not attractive. And the fact that he couldn't get control of his own anger in that moment. And at the same time, we want strong men that have the capability of those kind of levels of anger. So it, it's a in a way, it's like weirdly attractive of like, okay, men should be able to carry that kind of anger, that kind of passion, that kind of sense of justice. But it's also equally as attractive when they're able to bridle it in a way yeah. that they know when it's appropriate to go there and when it's not. And they will go there when they need to. But this was not a situation where Travis Kelsey needed Here's to. the thing. You can be strong and, and capable and an awesome football player while also being respectful. Like exactly. at the end of the day, it's not one or the other. And I think that's kind of, I, again, I've talked about, we've all talked about this, how society has really changed as we've introduced different things into it. And gone are the days, it feels like, I, I'm probably wrong, but gone are the days where when you put that uniform on, you are representing that team, you are mm. representing your fellow players, you are representing whatever, and your actions are going to be scrutinized. I mean, off the field, he was still on the field, yeah. so he really should have been paying attention. As some, I, Again, just as someone who has gone through that, not as high stakes, and maybe it's excusable, and you have to have, have some grace with these guys because, you know, there's so much pressure with football, and who knows what could have, you know led to that trigger moment, the amount of stress. So definitely giving you some grace, but it's just always important to remember when you are representing something as big as your National Football League team, Mm -hmm. you got to act right because there's little kids looking up to you and that is unacceptable to demonstrate to them. 100%. There's a good rule of thumb that the way a man treats his family is the way that he'll ultimately treat you. And I think the same applies for your football coach and the people who know you best. (laughs) Yeah. Spend a lot of time with those people. Well, we'll say to Taylor Swift, because of course you're you're listening to this right now, but, you know, don't, I would say, you know, you just need to talk to Travis about this situation. We don't want another don't, I knew you were trouble song. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, I, I don't think a situation like this is like, oh, she should instantly break up with him. But it's like, okay, there should be maybe a conversation of like, hey, do you struggle with anger issues? <laughs> that a thing but okay we're we have tied the bow we've tied the bow on travis kelsey and taylor swift we need to at least take a couple weeks off of them no we're, we're swearing off for at least at least two weeks unless something at least crazy two. happens at least two yeah we yeah. promise I mean, we promise we promise <laughs> all right Kristen, go ahead let us know what we have queued up today for sure up on today's problematic women we share the latest on the bodies of five aborted babies found in a box Outside an abortion clinic in D.C., heartbreaking. And should your car be able to determine if you are capable of driving? We discussed this new regulation coming out of the Biden administration. Plus, Biden's campaign is on TikTok. What message does that send? And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. We are diving right in to some heavy news today about 
Two years ago, the remains of five aborted babies were found in D.C. These were the remains of preemie-sized babies. Pro-life activists believe that those babies were aborted illegally at a Foggy Bottom, that's a neighborhood around D.C., um, based abortion facility. Our colleague who was on the show last week, Mary Margaret Olihan, has been covering this for really since the situation began a couple years ago. And there's been some really interesting developments in the last couple of weeks as we've watched and kind of asked the question of, okay, what is happening with with these uh, remains of these aborted babies? There's an investigation going on. Are individuals being held accountable? Is the truth actually being brought to light? And Emma, I know that this is a situation that you've been following because of your work and your research around the pro-life issue. Catch us up on the latest. What is happening in this situation right now? Yes. So going back even just to the beginning, right? So you have Lauren Handy, who's the director of activism at the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising. She and the president of their organization two years ago um, were going to different abortion clinics and were counseling women outside of its stores, addressing, um, yeah, their their concerns with abortion and, and trying to dissuade them to choose life. That day, they happened to go to a new facility where they saw a waste management individual removing boxes to take away. So they approached him and they were like, oh, like, what's in the boxes? And he was like, oh, I have no idea. So they managed to persuade him to actually give them the boxes because they said, we want to take these babies and we want to give them a proper burial. Um, And for whatever reason, he said yes, um, which seems a little bizarre to me. Mm -hmm. So they take these two bodies home to her apartment. And when they open it up, they, to their utter shock, find that these aren't just the remains of small children, 20, even 15 weeks or below, but these are near full-term babies who, based on their assessment, were aborted through partial birth abortion, which meant that the mother was induced, began to give labor, uh, began to labor, and then the children were destroyed. So they described a really horrific scene of Uh, skin being totally shredded, skulls being crushed, um, and these full bodies just utterly mangled. Um, Some were still in the placenta sac, um, and you could see entire, like, fully formed feet in the bag. And so in their surprise, they began calling everyone they could to try to get a proper autopsy because they rightly suspected, it, it seems, that these children were aborted illegally and were aborted near full term, which is way further than people say abortions are taking place. They were unable to find anyone willing to come. So they eventually called the D.C. examiner's office to perform an autopsy. So after this report, they said, "Okay, we're going to come pick them up, leave your door unlocked. And they had left the home and just left the children there. Um, They weren't living there. They weren't eating there at the time. And so they came to the apartment the day that the D.C. examiner was supposed to pick up the babies. And the D.C. examiner did. But then Lauren Handy herself was actually arrested by the FBI. Mm. So she's remained in an Alexandria detention center for two years since then awaiting trial and actually recently was just sentenced for um, obstructing access to an abortion clinic. So if she if she gets the full force of the fine, she could get 11 years in prison plus $350,000 fined. Um, and notably, right, she was arrested at her own home 
for obstructing people's access to an abortion clinic, something she had not been charged for at any point prior to this, um, but just happened to be around the time where she found babies who were aborted far past any acceptable date. So it seems that there's fear and intimidation tactics going on. Um, But to give the update for it, there was the concern that the D.C. examiner's office was going to destroy the baby's lives without releasing any information on the autopsy or any information about the nature of the babies. So we just recently got very good news that the children would not be destroyed until they had had the chance for a proper review board. Um, So a lot of members of Congress have been raising awareness about this. Um, But yeah, this is just one of those shocking examples of clearly like abortion extremism of abortions taking place way past the point where most people claim. And then D.C. lawmakers and D.C. folks in the medical world trying to cover this up at all costs. Mm. Why not just do the autopsy, right? Like you're past the point of keeping this hidden and let people know the truth, right? Let them know, okay, what, how far along, in fact, were these babies and, you know, Sunlight is the best disinfectant, and if you have nothing to hide, let the autopsy occur. Uh, Let there be a full investigation into that abortion clinic facility. And I think the longer that they appear to be kicking the can down the road, having something to hide, it's like, okay, well, what are you hiding inside that facility? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and something that, um, so actually the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America has an ongoing series right now called Exposed Abortion in America, where they're actually tracking the DC5 story. Um, Mm -hmm. The first podcast was just released and it's excellent, going through Lauren Handy's story and the status of these uh, DC5 babies. And one of the things they mentioned is that along the metro stops in DC, there are 22 abortion clinics easily accessible from the metro stops. 22. 22. My word. Just in the District of Columbia alone. And that many of those are known for conducting abortions past 30 weeks. And past 30 weeks is viability easy. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. children rarely are going to pass away if, they're, if they reach 30 weeks with the medical developments we have. So these are instances of just like willful destruction of life. Um, there, there's no question of if these children can feel, they can feel, they can hear, they can taste. Like these are full, uh, basically full developed babies that are being aborted at these stops. And so, yeah, the fact that they have for two years now been unwilling to release the information and to do a proper investigation means that they are covering up what we know exists, right, which is just a rampant abortion industry that is willing to take the life of children really at any point. And notably, these are not just abortion because of life of the mother concerns or abortion because of XYZ. These are just like therapeutic abortions because they're wanted. Yeah. Everything that you have just said just reminds me of a murder podcast. You know, like that is a set, like true crime. Sorry, true crime is a technical term, I think. And that is what's shocking to me. What you explained, if those babies had been born, like literally eight inches out of where they are are right now, Mm -hmm. that is the difference between what is life versus not life to these people that are, are, you know, pushing these abortions onto vulnerable women that don't necessarily, you know, like who knows what's happening at home. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's what's scary, outrageous, and just the fact that there is no accountability is so terrifying. But I just, like, I'm in shock. Like, what you just explained, like, I've heard on podcasts before, but it was done to someone that was alive, and then there's someone in jail 
who had conducted that. Right. Can you imagine like the psychopath level of like someone murdering babies and storing them in a box that were like already born? Like that's just that's the insane. level. Yeah, that's the level of like utter perversion and disrespect for life. And, and that is what's happened here, right? Like these are live, were living babies, right? Just and discarded in a box, like just so disrespectful. Yeah. You really have to become numb almost to the to life, to the value of life, to the value of the unborn. Do you think Emma that other abortion physicians are watching this case? It's a good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I it, yeah, it, knowing that the case is actually being uh, pressed and that hopefully results will come to light, the hope is that abortion clinics in the District of Columbia and elsewhere uh will be on high alert. Um mm-hmm. We will see. I highly doubt thus far that it's caused any like real change in behavior or lifestyle or practice. I mean, until you're you're caught or, you know, reprimanded for that. There has to be accountability. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, for all our listeners, we're going to keep you updated on this because this is obviously a case that I think stands to set really significant precedent. And it does stand to be either a, a green light or a red light to the abortion industry, honestly. So... There's a lot writing on this, an awful lot. But stay with us because up next, we are considering exactly how far the arm of the government should be allowed to reach and if it should specifically be allowed on the wheel of your car. But first, I want to tell you all about a really unique resource for conservative women. The Network of Enlightened Women seeks to challenge and really serve conservative women who are up against so many challenges on their college campuses specifically. You know, we we know that conservative women on college campuses often have very liberal professors. It can be challenging to find friends on campus who hold similar values. And that can honestly lead to college being a pretty lonely place. So if you remember, we just recently had on this show the president of NEW, the Network of Enlightened Women, Karen Lips. And she discussed her new book, You're Not Alone, The Conservative Woman's Guide to College. Now, if you get this book as a reader, you will get to know more than 20 college students and alumni and share in learning about their stories, real stories and real advice on how to survive and thrive on a college campus as a conservative woman. With these stories, Lips identifies problems on colleges and provides practical tips on how conservative young women can thrive in this environment. This college guide covers the many struggles and real-life situations that college women will face, whether they're freshmen or seniors. Empowering these women will help them become more effective advocates for conservative ideas during and after college. Again, the book is You're Not Alone, The Conservative Women's Guide to College, and it is available right now for purchase on Amazon. Buy a copy for yourself, your daughter, your sister, granddaughter, a friend, anyone you know who is in that situation right now of facing being a conservative woman on a liberal college campus. You can learn more about the Network of Enlightened Women by checking out their website, enlightenedwomen.org. And if you missed that conversation with Karen Lips a couple weeks ago, be sure to go check it out. (music) 
All right, let's talk cars. What was your first car? Do y'all remember your first vehicle? My first car was a 2000 minivan. Are you serious? I love that. For the first six months of my driver's license. Was that your car? No, so it was technically the family car, but I did drive it exclusively. (laughs) And there were like still car seats in it as my siblings needed driving. So I had a few people who were like, do you have kids? (laughs) And it was like a like 16 and pregnant scenario where I had to be like, no, this is my family's car, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) That's fantastic. That's so funny. Uh, The first car I bought, so like my Mm. mine, is uh, Jeep Cherokee, which is my fave. Okay, yeah. Drive around the city. Way cooler. (laughs) No, I just wanted to be a part of the Jeep fam, but like a Wrangler was so, I I just couldn't justify it, you know? So Cherokee was the next best thing. Yeah. so cute. It's like a nice, good, safe car. My first car was a hand-me-down. It was my grandfather's old car. It was a 1995 Honda Accord hatchback. hatchback. It was a great car. Uh, I... Before it was even fully mine, I wrecked it. Oh, no. (laughs) But it was still drivable. But it became the epitome of the college car that you think of because it was literally dented on all four sides. And I was kind of proud of it. I was like, yes, I am living that college life of driving this super old car. <laughs> but major shout out to Honda. Those cars just run and run Dude, and run. So our true. first like car that I was, I think, allowed to use, it might not have been this, was uh, a Honda Odyssey. So same minivan life. And that thing, we ran it into the ground. <laughs> Honda engineering, man, it lasts. It it's does. so true. It does. Good cars. That and Toyota. Yeah. Shout out. Well done, guys. Well, of course, we have regulations on cars in order for them to be safe. And there's levels where we can all get behind. Like, okay, yeah, there has to be some sort of standard for cars so that they are safe. We have federal regulations on cars. We have state regulations on cars. And back in 2021, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they were tasked with developing this new regulation, this new safety measure on a cars. They were told to develop a standard that, quote, requires passenger motor vehicles manufactured after the effective date of that standard to be equipped with advanced drunk and impaired driving prevention technology. Daily Signal Editor-in-Chief Kate Trinko wrote a great piece on this. We'll link it in the show notes. So in other words, it was a standard, is this mandate to come up with a strategy that would be a technology in a car that if you're driving and the car detects that you're drunk, you're high, whatever it might be, the vehicle is disabled and you're no longer able to to drive that vehicle. So it's like a warning would pop up or I think that the technology is still being fully fleshed out. But the idea is that the car would be smart enough to tell if you weren't capable of driving safely. So let's talk about instantly what are some of the pros and cons that come to mind when you all think about this kind of technology being in a vehicle? Well, here's the thing. I drive to work every single day uh, on 395. And the amount of times that I have seen, you know, accidents just from, from humans is insane. Introducing a technological barrier to my drive, which is only, you know, 20 to 30 minutes-ish average. Um, I can't imagine the number of crashes that I would see just from technology in your car telling you, hey, sorry, you swerved too fast to avoid that person or to avoid that car, you're done. And then you're stuck in the middle of a highway? Like, what... 
do we think that's safer? <laughs> so it's it just there's going to be a lot like our technology right now is not there. It shouldn't ever go there because, you know, basic freedoms. Are we really going to need like to add the ability to drive a car to our Bill of Rights? Like maybe I don't know. <laughs> um, founding fathers didn't anticipate that, I guess. But yeah, there's going to be a ton of unintended consequences from this, you know, good intentions type of regulation. Well, and that was one of the concerns that a lawmaker brought up was, okay, you have someone who swerves to miss a pothole and then the car in front of them breaks really fast. So they break really fast. And, you know, like it happens all the time when you're driving, right, that there's a couple instances in a row where you're maybe driving how the car would determine would be recklessly, but you're actually just driving defensively and how how can a car have the technology advanced enough to 100% of the time be accurate of okay this person's just driving defensively versus no their driving's actually impaired yeah no that's exactly right cuz i think there's also a really so, so one thing actually with the drunk driving they have talked about before and maybe even tested out before having breathalyzers attached mm-hmm. to cars. So you just blow in. If your alcohol levels are too high, your car doesn't start. If it's low, you're totally fine. Methods like that, though I'm not endorsing that particular one necessarily, seem like a much better approach to addressing a specific problem. Yeah. And this is what we often say, right? The devil is in the details and you want like a particular law for a particular issue, not just a wide reaching law that could actually that, that could maybe positively impact drunk driving. But ultimately, right, because of all of the, like, swerving and other concerns, it's going to impact how we drive, period. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you were saying, Kristen, like, there's a lot of concerns when it comes to if the car stops. Does that actually put your family at more risk, right? Mm -hmm. If it stops around a corner and a car doesn't see you and they hit you or, right, like, there's so many things that could actually put you in far more danger than not. And and it also reminds me in California, right, they're considering putting a uh, cap on cars where they can only drive the speed limit, no higher. And so, again, a regulation that's supposed to save lives, but then ultimately, Right. If you're driving your kid to the emergency room Mm -hmm, or your wife is in labor or I don't know, any any number of things that could happen where this is actually now not only impeding your personal freedoms, but this is all also putting you in additional danger in an attempt to help you. So not to pull the like slippery slope, but like this seems like a slippery slope example of like if they're able to control your car then they're actually controlling something fundamental about how you yourself interact with the world in a way that I think seems inappropriate for. Yeah. Well, it's the classic question of how far is appropriate for the arm of the government to reach because you can make a really good argument that that this saves lives but like that is the tension of the government right that's the tension that the founders knew that the american people would have and would wrestle with right of okay how much freedom are we willing to give up in order to guarantee safety and we've talked a little bit about it on the show before but that's a really important if you ever take any sort of political philosophy class, this is going to come up of like what is appropriate to to surrender in terms of freedom to the government in order to guarantee your safety. And there's some things that, you know, we can all agree on and that we kind of have just come to think of as normal. I've used the example before of, you know, guns aren't allowed in the airport. We've given up that freedom as a safety precaution that we've recognized like, okay, yes, that makes sense. We shouldn't allow people to carry a gun through the airport and onto the plane, giving past history of of plane hijackings. So it's sort of like, okay, so we understand that, but how far is too far? Because once you start surrendering those freedoms, then where does it stop? And there has to be a hard and fast stopping point. So if the government's saying, okay, no, 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 this is good because this will eliminate 
uh, or greatly decrease the number of individuals that die from car accidents at the hand of a drunk driver. And it's like, okay, well, well, that's great. But then what are what are those unintended consequences? Like you can't get your kid to the hospital driving faster what the car would deem reckless. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also bringing up something we were discussing earlier, the cost of the car. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not only is this going to increase the cost significantly to make the car, to have this sort of technology in place, but then cost of repairs mm. is going to be, frankly, unaffordable for most Americans. So just based on the sensors within bumpers currently, a couple of years ago in California, a bumper repair or replacement would be about three to $400. Now it's anywhere from 3000 to $4,000 mm, to replace a bumper because of the sensors within it. If you add this sort of self-driving, quote unquote, protections into your car, if you do get into any sort of wreck, you might as well say goodbye to your car because the cost of repairing it is going to be so high that, again, we're pricing normal Americans out of the opportunity to have cars under the auspices of saving their lives. But again, like, is this actually going to work for most Americans? Is it going to be affordable? It seems unlikely, especially given our current economy. And that not only makes the cost of the car go up, but insurance will yeah. also skyrocket. Because, about to say that. Yeah, insurance companies are going to think, well, it's going to cost twice as much for us to replace your car if you get in an accident. And that trickles down to everybody, whether you have a brand new car or an older car, everyone gets affected by that. And here's the thing, the agency implementing or, you know, figuring out a solution to implement this regulation. And I mean, there is a portal open. You can definitely file comments if you feel passionately. I certainly do. And what they have said is little data is available on which combination of sensors and indicators of driver state, if any, would achieve greater accuracy and reliability of impairment detection. So like at the end of the day, we might make everything more expensive you know, not have totally accurate ways of measuring, you know, what is and isn't um, impaired driving. And and what is it really for? We don't even know yet. We don't have the solutions. I'm not saying we aren't going to get there maybe someday. But Mm -hmm. in my mind, I see it as the soccer mom driving to soccer practice and a, a kid, you know, is crying. She looks back and something happens. Car stops or, you know, a little kid is crossing the street and the mom has to choose now between swerving or, you know, having her car totally stopped with oncoming traffic coming to hit on her. You know, yeah. like there's a ton of things. And I mean, will the sensors be smart enough to know what the difference between like a tree or, you know, some sort of dog, which would be really sad. But like things like that, what we don't know what we don't know. But mm-hmm. at the same time, our, we know that our technology is not advanced enough for that. And the agency that's pushing to make this a regu- like this regulation a reality has come out and said that, yet we're still pushing it. Yeah. Makes no sense. Well, and I am glad that they're acknowledging what they don't know. <laughs> I mean, fair. Um, but if you acknowledge it just to continue on, it's yeah, not. It's not. Right. The same thing's like, crazy. <laughs> one statistic that Kate quotes in her article, she says that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's acting administrator at the time, Ann Carlson, acknowledged the issues with this flawed technology. So in a Reuters interview, she said that given there's about roughly 1 billion car trips every day in the U.S. that, quote, if this technology is 99.9% accurate, you could still have 1 million false positives. Totally. Like, that's insane. That's insane. But it's a science. Everyday driving, right? A billion car trips, you could still have a million crashes because of this, like, perfectly fine technology. You know, we're in D.C. right now, and Mm -hmm. I don't know how many carjackings we're at this year, but, like, that's pretty scary. So what happens to your data then? You know, like, is this technology tracking how you drive and personalizing the data to you. I mean, we're both wearing aura rings like it does that for you, like it tracks your data, compiles your data, 
and allows you to do cool things with it. Are these cars going to do the same? And then if thieves steal your car, do they now have access to personal information that they mm-hmm. shouldn't have? Does um, that create a totally different criminal ring? Also, forget the criminal ring. Who has access to the data to begin with? Yeah. Fair. I'm just not confident <laughs> that drop. one. Right. Yes. Like, I'm just not confident that, like, one, the United States government is responsible for this. Hello, FBI targeting normal people with any data available. 100%. And two, I don't know, Chinese infiltration seems like a really big problem we're dealing with these days. And again, yeah. And then also like the typical thing people say is like, if they have the power to stop your car uh, for drunk driving, do they have the power to stop your car for any reason? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. In which case, like exactly how does this technology work with the car? And and frankly, we have examples of technology promising to do one thing. And then after it's implemented, realizing that it actually has far more power to control the device than thought before. Um, And so, yeah, like, do we really know what freedoms we're actually giving up in this arrangement? And, And the answer is probably not. Well, and speaking of security concerns, speaking Ooh. of China spying, let's what a talk transition. about TikTok. <laughs> oh, TikTok. Well, we, we've already discussed a little bit about the Super Bowl, of course, at the top of the show. And there was a lot of surprises that came with the Super Bowl. One that was pretty unique was President Biden's presidential campaign made the decision to get on TikTok. And that rolled out actually during Super Bowl Sunday. Biden appeared on the Chinese-owned social media platform for the first time on Sunday, and he was answering questions about the game. It was, as any TikTok, like a fun, very short, it was a 27-second video. And let's go take a listen to just a quick portion of it. This is from The Times. Chiefs or Niners? Two great quarterbacks, hard to decide. But if I didn't say I was for the Eagles, then I'd be sleeping alone. My wife's a Philly girl. Game or commercials? Game. Game or halftime show? Game. Jason Kelsey or Travis Kelsey? Mama Kelsey. I understand she makes great chocolate chip cookies. So TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is headquartered in Beijing, and it's subject to Chinese laws that require companies to make their user data available to the Chinese Communist Party. So in 2022, Biden signed an act banning the use of TikTok on all government devices, And the White House has said that uh, White House spokesperson John Kirby has said that the Biden administration's position on concerns regarding security concerns regarding TikTok haven't changed, even though Biden's campaign is now on TikTok. So the Biden administration, they've warned about the risks of TikTok. They've expressed concerns over security. But now it's it's interesting to see that his campaign, Biden's campaign, has joined TikTok and it, this issue I find intriguing because it's really not a right or left issue in a day and age when it's very hard to get conservatives and liberals to agree on much of anything. There is a lot of agreement around fear over TikTok and what kind of information this platform is gathering and how the Chinese Communist Party is storing it, what they're doing with it, how they're using it, how they could use it, even if they're not doing anything with it right now. So Lawmakers have kind of been saying, okay, this feels a little bit like a mixed message from the Biden administration that they're saying one thing, but then Biden's campaign is doing something different. So I think we have to look at TikTok again. We, we've talked about TikTok on the show, but it's like, okay, really at the end of the day, as as a TikTok user, what are the reasons to get off the platform? I could think of three. I'm curious if you guys have have any that you would add to this, but I would say... Number one is, of course, the concerns over China. 
the fact that the Chinese Communist Party does have access to know, okay, what kind of TikToks are you watching? Uh, What kind of content do you like? And even discover things like where you live based off of the content that you're consuming, the content that you like. That's disturbing that they have access to that. And okay, maybe they're not doing anything with it, but they could do something with it. And they could be storing it for something in the future. It could create access for very targeted attacks or even just them having a lot more influence over the kind of data you're receiving, over the kind of messages that you're being fed. Okay, so reason number one to get off of TikTok, you don't want China controlling you or controlling the kind of information that you see. It's also addictive. So there's multiple studies that have looked at what is going on in your brain when you watch these kinds of videos. And it taps in, TikTok videos tap in um, to your reward system in your brain, which releases dopamine. And that feeds addiction. We know when you get those quick dopamine hits, it's the same thing as how people get addicted to drugs, um, that it releases that hit of like, oh, this feels really good. And that creates the addiction of wanting and coming back for more and more and more. So in the same way that people aren't like, I'm going to start smoking because I want to get addicted. No one says that. It's like, okay, if we if we know, we have the data, we know that TikTok is addictive, so why would we engage in that if we know it's addictive? And then thirdly, reason to get off TikTok or not get on, I think is time, right? We all have limited time. It's the one equalizer. Everyone has the exact same amount of time within your day. We all have 24 hours in a day. What we have power over is choosing how we use it. And I will be the first to say I am guilty of giving Instagram reels too much of my time. And I felt very challenged in this season of what am I putting my energy into after work on the weekends? And it's really easy to pull out an app, pull up an app. It's a fun video app. And you, you're you getting those dopamine hits. So you kind of feel good. You feel like, okay, I'm doing something good with my time. But then at the end of it, you're like, all right, well, I just wasted an hour. And that's an hour that I'm not going to get back that I could have either been building a relationship with someone. I could have been working on a project. I could have been working on a side hustle. I could have been bettering myself in some way or even just getting more sleep, <laughs> which we all know is helpful. So if you're on that line, if you're teetering, consider China addiction, getting your life back in time (laughs) as reasons to maybe noodle on getting (laughs) off of TikTok. Or for that matter, I'll even throw in Instagram. I'm taking a break right now from Instagram, just trying to, again, get ownership of my time. But other things that you all can think of, of like, okay, why should we put TikTok in the trash bin? I mean, I, I think we need to put it in the incinerator. I don't think it should be in this this country at all. And I the biggest concern from that video, which I mean, good job, Biden. You did a, looked at the camera. You said the right thing. I mean, you didn't answer every question like with the answers they gave you, but whatever you were being creative, maybe <laughs> classic classic media tactic. <laughs> yeah, you know. it's, it's don't fine. actually answer the question that you're. Asking. I'll respect it, but. Here's the thing. We I, I remember when I worked at NASA, there were rooms I couldn't take my phone into because there was information that was too precious mm-hmm. to even have a, a personal device 
around. And and now we're allowing these government device or well, we're not allowing these government devices. But let's be real. If you're the president of the United States, both of your phones, you, the song, the two phone song, <laughs> one for your job and one for something else. He doesn't have another job. You know, he is the president of the United States 24 seven. You made the choice when you decided to run and you make the choice every single day to show up for your country. And if you're on TikTok and if any of your staff members are on TikTok promoting videos with you in it, you're not representing the American people or what they wish, because there are a lot of Americans out there that are very concerned with not just the three reasons that you gave, but even beyond that, like we do not need any infiltration any more infiltration, let's say that, because there's absolutely infiltration in our, our systems and our national security already underway. Why are you even enabling it? Why are you showing the next generation that it is okay? Yes, we need to reach the next generation of voters. But I mean, buy a Super Bowl ad, do something. I mean, maybe Biden can't do that, actually. I think there's some legal stuff. But like, <laughs> let's get creative here. We're not working on the CCP's platforms. We're not going to them. We are creating our own things made in America that we can trust. Yeah, I think it also just really strikes to the Biden administration's desperation. Oh, yeah. Um, like if you're trying to win the young vote, convince people that you're still mentally present, you're still mentally able, and that you're also a compelling person to vote for, right? Then TikTok seems like it could be a good strategy. But it is notable, like we've said, that to switch from we should ban it on all government devices to putting the president on it suggests that they, yeah, are just really desperate to try to win over votes um, and try to win over voters. Yeah, when it comes to his quote unquote coolness factor. <laughs> and I think there's probably certainly something to that. But yeah, like the concerns are just rampant. And especially looking at like, you have to ask yourself, how does the creator use this technology? And so we do this when it comes to computers and smartphones, right? Like Silicon Valley doesn't let their kids have access to screens or devices until at least eighth grade, right? Like a statistic we all know. So like, why are we giving it to kids when they're younger? The same for China. China doesn't allow an unfiltered use of TikTok. And the filtered use of TikTok that is allowed, the algorithm is heavily controlled to promote things such as getting good grades, respect and honor to your parents, working hard in industry and other areas. Whereas in the United States, the sort of things that the algorithm consistently pushes has to do with things related to gender ideology and your sexual orientation and, and these sorts of very corrupt and corrosive movements that are certainly not helping Americans and, in fact, probably encouraging them towards mentally unhealthy routes. So just even on that alone, right? Like good mental health. Like we, yeah, as we said, like really should ban TikTok altogether just for the sake of Americans, but particularly like take a rule out of China's book and do what they do. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to limit it, limit it to the right, yeah, possible topics. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, so as, as we joke on the show, your weekly reminder to get off of TikTok, <laughs> but stay with us because up next we crown our problematic woman of the week. Today, news you can trust feels like a rarity. That's why the Daily Signal podcast releases a top news edition every weekday at 5 p.m. Whether driving home from work, fixing dinner, or picking the kids up from soccer practice, you can stay informed on the headlines you care about. Every show is quick and succinct, designed to keep you up to speed on the issues that actually matter. Catch our top news edition right here in your Daily Signal podcast feed every evening. Or listen first thing in the morning before catching the day's interview. 
And be sure to subscribe on the Daily Signal podcast so you never miss an episode. Now it is that time once again, our favorite time of the week here on Problematic Women. It is time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week, and the crown goes to Lauren Handy. So we mentioned Lauren earlier in the show. She is the pro-life activist who found the bodies of the five aborted babies in that box outside the abortion clinic here in Washington, D.C., and as we said, she's, she's really someone who is on the forefront of a critical case that could set significant precedent for this issue of exposing our abortions happening far past when abortionists claim that they're happening. Are they happening far past when they're legally allowed to happen and expose what's actually going on behind the closed doors of abortion clinics? Yeah. In an interview, the same interview with Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, she said that she truly has so much joy and peace and that she is hopeful and confident that justice will prevail. So I think as we honor her, honor the good work that she has done and the sacrifice that she has made in her life to really stand up for the DC-5, sacrificing all of her freedoms, right, um, to being detained in Alexandria, the number Number one thing we can do as listeners is to contact Mayor Muriel Bowser's office here in D.C. to contact the D.C. chief of police and really advocate for Lauren Handy, but also the D.C. five babies. And I think that would probably be the best possible thing that we could do to really honor her sacrifice and honor the work that she's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's calling for the truth to be released, right, for that investigation to bring forth, to come forth and have answers, allow there to be answers for the American people to know what is the true story behind those five aborted babies. But with that, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Emma, thank you for being with us. Of course, guys. I always enjoy it so much. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, subscribe and share the show. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you right back here next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.